chapter two last week, and today we're doing chapter one. Um, no, we're not randomly going. So I was supposed to preach two weeks ago, but then it snowed. So now I get the, the preacher's burden of having to think about the same text for two weeks. Um, it's a burden, but it's a joy. Um, and it's a, it's a hard passage, um, but it's not a passage without hope. Um, so last week, Pastor JB showed us how um, from Micah chapter 2, that God will punish the oppressors for their oppression. Um, he showed us how the oppressors were breaking the second half of the Ten Commandments. Um, they had the power to steal, to kill, to lie, and not only covet, but the power to get the things they coveted. Today, my goal is to show from Michael 1 that the first half of the Ten Commandments, the half about worshiping God alone, the half about not making idols, the half about obeying the Sabbath, the half about not taking the Lord's name in vain, is the root of oppression. You break the first half, you will break the second half. So, I'm going to read Micah chapter 1. It's a long, long uh, chapter, but just preliminary uh, observation before we read it, and then I pray. You can divide the passage into just two main parts. God is going to judge, and the people are going to respond. Right? God is going to judge, and the people are going to respond. But then in the middle, you have Micah's reaction. Of both the judgment that's coming and the people's response. So Micah, in, in one sense, is holding the two together, right? He is bringing the message of God to the people. It's a hard message, but he's also telling the people what's going to happen. And he's encouraging them in his own way <laughs> um, that this is going to happen because of their idolatry, because they've broken the first half of the commandments. So, Micah chapter 1, and it reads, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Meresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, all, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord, give, let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country and a place for planting vineyards. And I'll pour down her stones like into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathers them, and to the fee of a prostitute, they shall go. For this 
I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostrich, for her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehapra, roll yourselves in dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shifriah. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Bethelza shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Morath wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the, ste the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give pardon gifts to Morashat Gath. The houses of Akazib <laughs> shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will... Again, bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marsha, the glory of Israel, shall go to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair, for the children of your delight, make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're good and your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, even in judgment, we cry out that you are God and you have dominion over everything and Lord no one can tell you what have you done no one can question your decisions because you're a wise God and every decision you make is from your wisdom Lord I pray that today as I seek to preach this word to your people that they will be encouraged even as we see our own sin in Israel and in Judah I pray that you help us to also see encouragement in Jesus. For he, Lord, is the one who saves us from our idolatry. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I've titled the sermon, uh, The Cost of Idolatry. The Cost of Idolatry. And my main point is simply this. Uh, it's, it's sort of negative, but we'll turn that around. But my main point is this, that idolatry is not a victimless sin. Idolatry is not a victimless sin. Pastor Stan mentioned in the first sermon uh, in Micah, in our series, that Micah uses a lot of wordplay, right? Micah packs a lot into a little bit of words, packs a lot of punch. Um, and he said, uh, Pastor Stan said, that if Micah were a contemporary today, and he was speaking to us, he'll say something like this. Washington, you will be washed away. Baltimore, you will be no more. Can you imagine that? Baltimore being no more. The closest I came to seeing Baltimore being no more was during the Freddie Gray riots, watching the TV and watching the, um, the chaos going on, the fires, the people, the mobs in the streets on TV. 
And I called a brother of mine that I, I thought, you know, I believed had lived in the city for a while and had some insight as to what's going on. How do we make sense of all these rioting? How do we make sense of all this looting? How do we make sense of the fires, the anger? How do you make sense of all of it? And his response was simply this. These are basically aimless youth who have nothing to do. Now, granted, nothing wrong with keeping youth busy, right? As the saying goes, idleness is what? The devil's playground. But a better way to understand the mobs is from the words of a rap song called No Church in the Wild. Some of you might know it. And if you don't know this song, don't worry about it. Um, I'm actually serious. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but there's there are some words in the song that I... See, now that I've said don't worry about it, you're going to... Anyway, there's some words in the song um, that, that is very poignant to um, the mobs. And um, here's a hook or the chorus of the song by uh, Frank Ocean. It says this, human beings in a mob, what's a mob to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to a non-believer who don't believe in anything? We make it out alive. All right, all right. No church in the wild. The ocean is basically saying the church has lost the right, nor the credibility to comment on the mobs, on the rioting, on the looting. Why? Because the church is not in the wild. What can a king say to the mob if he doesn't even believe in God? And what can God say to the mobs if they don't believe in him? In other words, to summarize Micah's message in chapter 1, idolatry is not a victimless sin, especially for the people of God. When we are not in the wild, when we do not care about the oppressed, we lose the credibility to speak into their situation. In fact, the prophet shows us that breaking the first four commandments will naturally lead to breaking the other six. If you worship idols, you will become like the thing you worship. You will become an oppressor. You will have eyes that do not see suffering. You will have ears that do not hear the suffering being carried away. You have hearts that are cold and unbeaten. If you want to know what kind of God if people worship, find out how they feel about oppression. If you want to know what a church is about, find out what the church does when it sees oppression. Which brings me to my first point. Some of you have resolved this year to read through the Bible and praise God. My encouragement to you is keep it up one day at a time. But as you read through the Bible, one of the themes that you notice is very early on, God shows up to save his people. See, whenever God appears, he's appearing on the behalf of his people to save them from an oppressor. Whether it's Egypt, whether it's Midia, right? Whether it's the, um, the Philistines. Yet in Micah, at least in Micah chapter 1, Micah receives a vision of the Lord's coming. And this time, it's not to save his people. 
It's not to save his people from the nations, but rather to treat them like the nations. Why? Because they become just like the nations. They become just like the people they were driving out. The thing that sets the people of God apart from all the other nations was the temple. But guess what? In the temple of God, they started worshiping idols. Imagine that. The one place that God has set up to have his glory dwell. The people of God have the audacity to bring in other gods. They set up high places. Now, the high place is a technical term for a place to worship other gods. But it also has a military tone to it, right? You think of a high place as a place of advantage, right? No one worships at the high place because it's easy. They worship at a high place because it works really well. They worship at a high place because it gives you the advantage, right? Because you get to control your God, right? They worship at a high place because that's where they find military power. So God calls the whole earth to pay attention to what the fight is going to look like since they want to take advantage, since they want to be on their high places. God tells them in verse 2 and 3, Here, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Now we get a glimpse to understand sort of God's frustration, right? You have to, as we read in um, 1 Kings, you have to get a context of what's going on behind the scenes. Why is Micah bringing this heavy message? Now we mentioned through the three kings I mentioned in chapter in verse 1 of Micah 1, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now based on the kings mentioned, we can assume Micah prophesied for about 18 years, at least 18 years. And all, and like all the true prophets, Micah did not separate religious conviction of the leadership from political or military practice. His aim was to curb the religious and the political policy of the land. His aim is to hold the leadership accountable. But what was he trying to curb the people from? We're told in verse 5 and 6. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So here's, uh, for a bit of history, um, Jerusalem and Samaria are basically the capital of two kingdoms. Imagine Washington, D.C. All the decisions that is made about the land comes out of Jerusalem and Samaria. So let's talk about the history of Samaria, for example. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, as uh, Brother Carl pointed out. The kingdoms are separated at this point. There's a northern kingdom. Uh, can you pull it up, Damien? So there's a northern kingdom and then there's a southern kingdom, right? Um, when they all came out of Egypt, they were one kingdom, right? But over time, they had some civil rivalry and they separated. So now you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The thing that makes Jerusalem unique is the fact that that's where the temple is, okay? That's where the glory of God is supposed to dwell. 
But Samaria also has its own temple, not sanctioned by God, but they had a temple. So here's what's said about the kings, um, uh, the kings that uh, were, were serving during, for example, Micah's time. And it said of one of the kings specifically, uh, Menahem, it said this. At the time, Menahem sacked Tisphaza because they did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. Yes, very graphic, right? But of the five kings that reigned during Micah's life or prior to Micah's life, four of them are assassinated. And this is the only guy that survives. And you can see how he survives. He survives by brutality. Okay, so what about the southern kingdom, Judah? At least they had the temple, so they must be all right. But then in First Kings chapter, Second Kings chapter 16, this is what we read about Ahaz. When King Ahaz went to Damascus, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. The, the picture here is really interesting. When, again, when you read in the early part of the scriptures, God gives the exact imprint of what the temple should look like, right, from heaven. And the picture here is that Ahaz is literally given instruction to a priest to make idols. In verse 11 in 2 Kings chapter 16, Ahaz, I mean, uh, and Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz has sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. Now do you see why God is coming down to tread down the high places? Because idolatry is not a victimless sin. Now, if you are Micah, what, what do you think your reaction should be? What do you think the nation needs about right about now? Frankly, you're waiting for judgment to come. Frankly, as a prophet, you have a message for the people. Frankly, you are waiting for God to act on his own behalf. Because you see the oppression around you and you see why they're being oppressed. You see, the oppression is coming from idolatry. You see, oppression is coming from a lack of regard for who God has showed himself to be and the people's disinterest in who God tells them he is. And then one day you get a word from God. You get a vision from the Lord, and it's the Lord coming from his holy place to their high places. What would your reaction be? Do you rejoice? Do you gloat? Do you despair? You know the spiritual condition of the people. They haven't been to church in a while. And when they went to church, the message that they got did nothing to distinguish them from the people around them. When they came to church, they were not changed. When they came to church, they were not convicted. They were worshiping the same idols that were outside of the church. But praise God, God does not leave his people without a witness, right? Which brings me to my second point. Grief for judgment. 
Micah gives us hope even when the people of God reject his grace. Yet we should ask, how did Micah remain faithful? What set Micah apart? We get a glimpse into his spiritual life, which I think is actually the central theme of the book. In chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, But as for me, I will be filled, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. See, this infilling of the spirit of the Lord, this free gift of God's grace, is how one can look injustice in the face and say, come what may. Because of who God has revealed himself to be, because of who God has said he is, our love for that God has to align with our practice. We cannot say we love God and not care about injustice. We cannot say we love God and not care about oppression. And we need to watch our hearts. If we don't care about oppression, whether we really are worshiping God. This infilling of the Holy Spirit is how a man or a woman can say, if I perish, I perish. What can man do to me? See, the prophet must not only speak the truth, though. He must also carry the grief of judgment that comes with bearing the truth. Take a look at verse 18 of Micah chapter 1. Micah tells us what a spirit-filled messenger must also do. In verse 8, he says, For this I will lament, I will wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostrich. See, Micah does not rejoice. He does not gloat. He does not despair of the judgment that's coming. He doesn't shut his mouth. Why? Because he's a watchman. He sees judgment coming because the people are worshiping idols in the house of God. And he has no option but to speak the truth. Otherwise, the blood of the people will be on his hands. So what does Micah do instead? See, Micah does not rejoice. Like I said, he doesn't gloat. But instead, he takes up a lamentation. Now, what is the lamentation? The closest thing that comes to, um, to mind when I think of lamentation is uh, usually in, in Ghanaian, so I'm originally from Ghana, um, and when someone dies, you go to the person's house, and you just you sit around, and you're, you're mourning with the person. You don't really say anything, but... Usually what would happen is while you're all sitting around, um, one person will get up and give a lamentation. And it will sound something like this. So let's say Johnny is dead. There's no Johnny in there, right? Okay. Let's say Johnny is dead, right? Um, and one, one person will get up and say, Johnny, oh, Johnny, my brother Johnny, why did you die so soon? We were supposed to be hanging out tonight. We were supposed to be doing something. Oh, Johnny. And then they'll sit down. And then someone else will get up and basically do the same thing, right? And what they're doing is they're lamenting, they're grieving, right? Um, 
Now, here's the problem with Micah lamenting and grieving over Jerusalem and Samaria. It's one thing to do it when the person is dead. It's another thing to do it. It's actually rude to do it when the person is alive. For all intents and purposes, Jerusalem looked alive. And actually, all the cities that are mentioned after chapter, I mean, after verse 10, look alive. And Micah is lamenting for them. He's wailing, he's grieving, he's walking around like a madman for them. In fact, Micah is scaring them. Micah is basically walking around Baltimore with the message, Baltimore, if you don't change your ways, if you don't worship the Lord as he presents himself, you will be no more. People of God, if we don't worship the Lord as he presents himself, we will be no more. See, but one task of the prophet is not only to tell the truth, he's also to embody the grief. Because this is a hard message. This is a hard message for a very stubborn people. So, for example, the prophet Hosea has to marry a prostitute to show the people that they prostituted themselves. Ezekiel is commanded not to mourn even though God is about to take his wife. And, and he does it. Jeremiah is commanded, buy a plot of land. Yes, I'm sending you into exile. But you'll be back. Micah is drawing attention not to himself, but to how even God feels about the judgment that he's bringing for idolatry. See, Micah in his body, in his actions, in his nakedness, in his grief, is showing us how God feels about oppression, how God feels about those who are suffering. See, friends, Micah is pointing us to one who will come and will be called the man of sorrows. Micah is pointing us to a man who will come, the prophet who will speak the truth about who we really are whether we like it or not. See, Micah is pointing us to be to one who will carry the grief of the Lord's judgment in his body. See, Micah is pointing us to Jesus. See, the one who will tell us the truth about who we are, the one who will tell Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the people who would not accept the prophets that are sent to them, the people who kill the prophets, that are sent to them. Oh, Jerusalem. Micah is, is pointing us to Jesus Christ who grieves. Family, Jesus is not happy about the judgment that's coming. See, but he does not pretend it's not coming. He doesn't change the message. Yet in his own body, he embodies this judgment. Jesus is the one who was oppressed. He's the one who is filled with the spirit of God. He's the one who walks around with grief in his heart. 
Jesus is the one who looks at oppressors and tells them the truth that even if they do not repent, even if they do not worship God as he presents himself, they will be taken away for their idolatry. In verse 10, this is my last point. In verse 10, we get a hint of, uh, of hope. And basically, the hope is this. Sell it not in gas. Okay, what is gas? Who cares about gas? Gas is the place where Goliath is from. So, sell it not in gas is actually a technical term that the people of Israel will know very much what's being said because this is the lamentation that David rose up when Saul was killed. And what he meant to say was this. Tell it not in gas that Saul is dead. Don't be excited that Saul is dead. Because God himself will raise up a victor. God himself will raise up a real king who will save the people. Friends, who are you worshiping? Friends, who is your king? Who is leading you? Is he a king who carries the grief and judgment that is to come in his own body? Or is it, a, is it a king of your own making? Well, we have two applications for us tonight. I mean, this uh, morning. And the first is this. Idolatry is costly. Look at the cross. Look at the grief that it brought our Lord. And therefore, we need to keep our hearts free of idols. And my second application is this. We have not done justice to the oppressed if we do not point them to the Lord as he presents himself. We are not doing them a favor only by pointing out their oppression. Because the difference between the oppressed and the oppressor is power. That's it. It's power. But God tells us that he is only to be worshipped. And as we worship him, we develop a heart for oppression. Because it only takes power for the oppressed to become the oppressor. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, you're good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, as we see what it costs you to take us from our idolatrous ways, as we see Jesus Christ suffering on a cross because of oppression, we're deeply moved and we're grateful for his suffering. We're grateful for what he's done on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be people who care for the oppressed because we see what that did to our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.